0: We still have stragglers wandering in. I had to go up to the uh, go up to Austin again yesterday to uh, take care of a family matter, and went ahead and went on up to uh, Camp Penile Afterwards, they had the start of what they something they started about ten years ago called Seniors Camp, It's for people fifty and over. And uh, there weren't too many people who were in their sixth decade. Most of them were over. That, but it was great. And to drive up to the hill country was glorious this year. I have never in 50 years seen the hill country so magnificent. Absolutely the greenest, lushest I've ever seen it. Everything's blooming in spades, in megapixels, because there wasn't anything last year, and they decided to bloom double this year for everything they missed last year. It's just unbelievable. Just, just, in some places, you just see like 50, 60 acres solid of, of blue bonnets, and uh, just, just incredible. Nothing, nothing like it um, anywhere. So this, this weekend, uh, Passover begins Friday night, Friday night to Saturday night. And in light of that, and Sunday being Resurrection Day, we will have a one of our uh, more <clears throat> one of our unique communion services on Sunday because I will do a Passover demonstration on Sunday, and then the next week on the 14th, Saturday, the 14th of April, will be the uh, church picnic. So be ready for that, and be sure to come because we have such a great great time, and I'll try not to. Strain any muscles, break any legs, do anything, playing volleyball this year. But we will have fun. We always do. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you're in fellowship and ready to to study the word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful today that we can come together to Worship you, glorify you through the study of your word that we can come to understand your word and how it relates to our lives and teaches us how to think and what to think. We're thankful that we can uh, be used by you in a way to serve others in the body of Christ and to minister to one another in the body of Christ. And we're thankful of all things that we have your word, which is that which sanctifies us. Father, as we study your word this evening, help us to understand it and to apply it to our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, and I'm going back to verse 11 of Acts uh, Acts 6, which is the beginning of the uh, charges that are brought against Stephen. Remember, Stephen was one of those chosen, uh, one of the seven chosen to serve in the early Jerusalem church. Now, remember, at this stage, you... The church is exclusively, or almost exclusively, Jewish. There is among the seven that are listed here, though they have Greek names, they're all Jewish except for uh, one, uh, Nicholas, who is a proselyte from Antioch. So he's uh, Gentile, but he, has, he was a proselyte to uh, Judaism in a synagogue in Antioch, and then he accepted Jesus as, uh, as Messiah. And so that, that's the seven. Now, the focal point coming out of that episode is going to shift to two, two of the key individuals that were chosen, first Stephen and then Philip. And Stephen is never, in fact, neither one of them are ever pro- portrayed as those who were involved in this administration of the uh, funds for the support of the widows, uh, I don't know if that was because they they really didn't have a direct role, or maybe this was a role of these men overseeing those who actually carried out the work. But the focus is really on the fact that they both had a ministry of the word, and they're as apostolic uh, as as apostolic appointees. They're appointed by the apostles to help uh, them. They are an extension of the apostolic ministry. And as such, their position, their authority was validated by these miracles that they performed and that they were noted for uh, uh, signs and wonders. And as a result of their ministry and the ministry of the apostles in uh, Jerusalem, which is still a Jerusalem-based church, a great many, we're told in verse 7, a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now, this has got to really begin to irritate this, the Sadducees. Most of the priests came or were associated with the Sadducee party, and the Sadducee party tended to dominate the Sanhedrin and it clearly had control of temple worship and all of the funds that uh, were all the profit that they made in, and it wasn't a free market environment. It was collusion, and it was uh, in violation of the Mosaic Law as they were uh, overcharging in the uh, money exchange. Uh, as people came from other areas of the empire, they would have to change their money for shekels to pay the shekel ta- uh, half-shekel temple ta- tax. And so it was a corrupt uh, enterprise. But now you have a vast number of priests... Being saved, this is beginning to get very personal for the leadership of the Sanhedrin, especially Caiaphas, uh, Josephus Caiaphas, who was the high priest at this particular time. Incidentally, we have discovered the ossuary uh, about 10 years or more ago. The ossuary of, of Caiaphas was discovered. It was clearly marked uh, as with, with his name. An ossuary is a bone box. What they would do in the ancient world is they would have the, the tomb, a cave, where they would uh, p- place the body, and then after a year, after decomposition, everything else was complete, they would go in and they would take the bones that were left and they would then put those into a bone box, uh, and which was a stone box with a lid on it, and they would seal it, and that was where they would place the remains of the of the body, and so we have discovered uh, the the bone box, the ossuary of Caiaphas, which validates his existence, and the fact that what the Bible says, at least as far as Caiaphas goes, is being the high priest at this time, uh, it is it, it is accurate. Uh, Stephen has a tremendous ministry that begins uh, to be described in verse eight, but it is irritating to a number of the. Uh, of the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, specifically those who are part of what is called the synagogue of the freedmen. I said last time that there was a vast number of synagogues in Jerusalem, and one of those was comprised of Jews who were former slaves who were, now had their freedom, and uh, they were from various other parts of the empire, and had they were Hellenistic Jews, and they had come back, uh, into, uh, come back to Jerusalem. And it could very well be that because uh, Stephen... Um, because of his name, is a Greek name, he may not have been a a, uh, native Hebrew. He might have been a Hellenized Jew that also had come back. We just don't know, but uh, that would certainly explain, uh, could be an explanation for why this particular synagogue was so incensed and why they were disputing with Stephen is because he may have been one of them. We just don't know, but he specifically is involved in, Uh, challenging them and going through the the, uh, Hebrew Scriptures to show what the Hebrew Scriptures taught about the the coming Messiah, all of the various uh, prophecies. But they could not answer his arguments because uh, he was strengthened by uh, God the Holy Spirit. And so they just could not win the debates. They could not uh, uh, convince him that he was wrong. And yet they were set... In negative volition, set against him, it didn't matter what he said. It's like so many people uh, that we run into. Don't confuse me with facts. My mind's made up. Just let me be comfortable in my ignorance, comfortable in my position because that's what I know. And don't make me think. Don't make me go out and look at evidence, study arguments and think through any kind of situation in order to come to my own decision on what is true or what is false. And so since they uh, had let their egos become involved in this debate, they were going to win it one way or the other no matter what ethical breaches uh, were involved, no matter what uh, they had to do to break the uh, law of Moses. And so they go out and they induce certain men, they, they develop a conspiracy to find certain men who they um, conspire with who will testify in a courtroom setting. Uh, notice they're, they're seeking to get men to commit um, false witness, a violation of the of Tenth uh, Commandment, uh, to, to commit false witness. And they are going to lie in court, and they're going to make certain claims. Now, it is these claims that are very interesting. Here's the charge. I've summarized it. They claim that that Stephen has committed blasphemy. That means he is overturning or hostile to uh, what God has said. And so the initial claim is stated in verse 11. We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So that's their starting point. Notice I listed God first. They list Moses first because they're more concerned about Moses and the traditions than they really are with God. So they're more concerned that he's violating uh, or speaking words against Moses and then God and then in verse 12 we're told they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes. So this is three different groups. They're rabble-rousing among just the uh, the masses, the crowds that uh, uh, have come to Jerusalem, probably at a feast time, but they're 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 uh, spreading lies and rumors among the people. And these these things happen all of the time. We see a lot of it today with the internet. There's a tremendous amount of gossip and slander that takes place on the, uh, through email. And you see it especially with regard to political things. And you see it on both sides of the aisle. Uh, you see a lot of conservatives who, 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 anything that is said against the Democrats, they're willing to believe it and pass it on to other people, even if it's something that was proved false 10 years ago and was originally applied to some other individual. The same thing happens on the left side of the aisle, and you have a lot of liberals who pass around a lot of lies about conservatives. And this is just the road to perdition for both sides because you find that people are more concerned with just uh, finding something to support what they believe rather than seeking truth and they're willing to pass on any any kind of lie or rumor or gossip just because it puts their uh, uh, opponent in in a bad light and that is that is wrong we should make sure that before we say anything or pass anything along that we've checked it out and make sure that it is indeed uh, indeed true so this is a, <clears throat> the the uh, early form of the gossip game as they began to spread these these lies, uh, about Stephen around and as it would go through the people we can just imagine how how it built and built among the the term the elders would refer to the uh the leaders of the synagogues and the scribes would refer to those who were uh, uh usually associated with the Pharisees and were responsible for copying and overseeing the copying and duplication of the Old Testament scriptures And so as a result of having stirred everybody up, just going out as rabble-rousers to stir up the crowd uh, without any evidence, we've seen an example of that in the last couple of weeks, haven't we, in the national news, how certain people go out and rabble rouse on certain cases, and they have no evidence whatsoever of the charges that they're bringing. And we've seen various uh, people marching for uh, claiming that... um, uh, this George Zimmerman was a racist, uh, and the evidence seems to suggest he 's not. Nobody knows what actually happened, but it really doesn 't matter what the facts are. Uh, you have When you have demagogues going out and stirring up the emotions of the crowd, then justice is the first thing that is sacrificed, and that 's exactly what happens here with Stephen. Justice was the first thing that was sacrificed because people begin to function emotionally on the basis of prejudices. And that there is a a threat that they believe is real against things they hold uh, hold to be true. In verse thirteen, we read that the these uh, leaders in the synagogue of the freedmen also set up false witnesses who said, "This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words." Notice how it's increased before he said they that. Uh, Uh, We've heard him speak blasphemous words, and now it's he doesn't ever stop speaking blasphemous words. against. And now it's not Moses and God, it's against this holy place and the law. So there are four things that he's charged with in terms of blasphemy. Blasphemy against God, blasphemy against Moses, blasphemy against the law, the Torah, and blasphemy against the temple. Uh the problem with this is that uh there that none of this rises to the level of a of a blasphemous charge. He doesn't say anything that is is blasphemous. Uh Numbers fifteen thirty says But the person who does anything presumptuously, whether he's native born or a stranger That one brings reproach on the Lord, and he shall be cut off from among his people. Doing anything presumptuously would be uh, blasphemy, which is bringing a charge, a false charge against God. Now, the thing is, what you have here is a dynamic where spurious charges are being brought against uh, Christians, and this is nothing new. This has been a standard approach from uh, of, of Satan and the enemy down through the decades and down through the ages. Uh, to, this is one of the easiest ways to try to attack an enemy. There are ad hominem charges. People say, just accuse somebody, well, look at that person. He's associated with so-and-so, so therefore, whatever they say is wrong. Uh, but you constantly hear these kinds of false charges brought today. And if you turn on uh the discovery channel, the history channel, many of those channels you you turn on uh some of the pbs channels and you listen to certain people that uh that they interview, they always interview or almost always interview liberals and usually if they do bring a conservative in uh then he is uh he is outnumbered probably 4 or 5 uh, to 1 but you find that these kinds of charges have really increased in their, uh, uh, in, in their uh, popularity and exposure over the last uh, 200 years. We have the claim that Moses didn't write the Torah, that the, when the Old Testament claims that it was written, the Torah, the first five books of, of the Old Testament were written by Moses. No, Moses didn't write that. Um, and that was a view that came out in the early, uh, early 19th century by a couple of German scholars, uh, Graf and Wellhausen, and they argued that, well, that writing wasn't even around that time. The law code, they, Moses couldn't have written the law. They didn't have formulated law at that time. They, they, they hadn't evolved enough. And archaeology has disproven almost every major claim, or every, I will say every major claim on which the... Um, uh, Graf-Wellhausen view was based, and yet even, and, and that was true, bef- uh, uh, scholarship had pretty much refuted all of their arguments by the 1950s. In fact, one of the greatest uh, refutations of their view, which is called The Documentary Hypothesis, was a book by a Jewish Old Testament scholar, not a Messianic Jew, uh, by the name of Umberto Casuto, and he wrote a little bitty book, about 90 pages long, that just decimated on the basis of archaeological and historical evidence every claim made by Graf and Wellhausen. And yet even today, their basic assumptions still undergird a lot of scholarship in the Old Testament, Old Testament studies and in um, a lot of Old Testament departments uh, throughout uh, Western civilization, you go to if you 're outside the evangelical schools, it dominates and that 's what you hear on on these various shows they They move the exodus date up uh, they late date the exodus to about twelve hundred under under Ramses hence you have the that 's popularized in the uh, Ten Commandments where Ramses played by Ewell Brenner, is the pharaoh of the uh, of the exodus they um, uh they, they move things around uh by dates and other things that happen, but basically the claim was Moses could not have written the Torah. Moses didn't write the Torah. In fact, it was really written by a bunch of different people. Some people some of the writers preferred the name Elohim, so they call that the E document. Other people uh preferred the name Yahweh, so that's our Jehovah, so that's the J document. Uh, there were others who were very concerned with the ritual, so those were the priests. And then there were, was uh, the writer of Deuteronomy who came, of course, after the exile and wrote Deuteronomy. And so these various uh, editors cobbled everything together. And it really wasn't until after the exile, which is like 500, that you have the Pentateuch written. So Moses couldn't have written that. It's all just made up. They view uh, the biblical... Uh, teaching as another human invention, like all other all other religions it 's just a lie, and they brought that into the New Testament that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John didn't write the Gospels in the first century. These Gospels were written by uh, later writers using the names Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to give themselves credibility, and they wrote down these legends that had finally sort of been consolidated around Jesus sometime in the middle to late second century. And, uh, and that's been pretty much proven false by archaeological evidence and the discovery of... Uh, numerous quotations in early church fathers, apostolic fathers. These are the ones that began. At, uh, they were not scriptural writers, but they began in the late, uh, late first century. Men like Clement of Rome, uh, Polycarp, Papius in the early second century. These were, were men who quoted uh, from scripture uh, in their in their sermons, and we have some of their those sermons, and they quote from obviously. Uh, gospel texts and other New Testament epistles, which indicates that by the late first century uh, the the New Testament, while it hadn't been collected as we have it, but these books were known and were being quoted by by others. In fact, there was a very liberal scholar by the name of John A. T. Robinson who's usually known for his death of God theology. Um, he wrote a book that was a, a very anti-Christian book, coming from a liberal, liberal theological perspective in the early '60s, called Honest God. But he wrote another book where he, where he, in fact, went through all of the evidence and he redated the writings of all of the New Testament. Now conservatives don't accept his dates because they're way too early. But here was a, a, a liberal scholar who had the objectivity and honesty to recognize that that most of the New Testament was written. He claimed was written far be- before A.D. seventy. We would not agree with all of his many of his conclusions, but he recognized that that the archaeological and historical evidence meant that the New Testament had to have been written during the time of the apostles and at least during the uh, during the first first century. But you'll often find this when you're talking to people, you're witnessing to people, and they will make these claims. They'll say, well, Peter didn't write that, that these were written by different people, and it's been translated so many times that, that we don't really know what they wrote. And there's gaps between the original writings and copies that we have, so anything could have been made up and inserted in there. So how are you going to answer that? I mean, the answers are pretty simple. Go back and listen to some of uh, 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 Ron's lectures during the pastor's conference. All the answers are, all the answers are there. Ron Minton uh, uh, gave some great lectures there as well as providing additional course uh, lectures for Chafer Seminary on uh, the history of the New Testament text and textual criticism. Uh, they claim that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He only passed out. And, uh, w- well, what's your evidence for that? Well... We don't really have any. Well, what about the evidence of the New Testament? Well, they wanted to prove Jesus did die on the cross, so we just have to discount that because they're prejudiced. So on that basis, I guess we can't ever convict anyone in a court of law of any crime because the evidence that the prosecutor brings against the criminal has to be made up because that just supports his case. So that can't be true. See, it's just silly logic that they use. It's not even logic, it's just irrationality. But but the trouble is, so many Christians don't know enough history, don't know enough theology, don't know enough about how we got the Bible that, that that all of a sudden they hear something like that and they hear it from somebody who's got three PhDs and they're just flummoxed. But it's real simple just to go to the text and to show that that historically and on the basis of, of uh, other evidence and writers, that uh, the scriptures were written early in the first century, and therefore they were written at a time where many of the eyewitnesses of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection were still alive, and those who were in Jerusalem at the time that those things happened were still alive and could easily have debunked whatever these other these claims were if indeed it had not actually happened. Uh, you have uh, uh, other attempts to uh, accuse the text of lying. That They changed the dates of prophecy in the Old Testament to after the event. Uh, Daniel, when I went through Daniel, we spent some time in the early part of Daniel talking about when Daniel was actually written and what the evidence is for when it was written. Because if Daniel is written as, as uh, uh, traditional Jewish scholars and Christians have always said sometime around uh, no, no later than 538 B.C., because that's about the time that Daniel died, or 537, somewhere like that. Then much of what Daniel writes in Daniel 9, Daniel 11, Daniel 12 is, is prophecy. It's absolutely incredible that you have this level of detailed prophecy written a couple of hundred years before the event. But if you come along like the liberals do and say, you know, it really wasn't written then. It was written much later. it was written about one hundred fifty a d then it 's written after the fact, and daniel isn 't prophecy it 's history and then you have you, they do the same thing with Isaiah and Jeremiah to get away from uh, having to face the fact that there is supernatural revelation with genuine predictive prophecy. so the opponents always lie and they bring false accusations but they make sure that those false accusations are buttressed by what appear to be uh substantive arguments in order to uh validate their case and so those who are willing to be duped those who are willing to be deceived those who are not willing to take the time to evaluate the evidence and think through the issues uh easily go along uh with uh, those who are bringing false false charges now it's interesting as we look at this particular list, that when we look at Stephen's response in chapter 7, I'm going to try to cover most of it tonight, we'll come back look at some detailed issues next time, but I want to try to cover it as a whole tonight, um, that, that Stephen does not give evidence of a man who is showing any disrespect at all for God or Moses' temple or Torah. He shows a tremendous amount of respect for God, and in his the the way he lays out his argument, he shows and, and proves near the end that the leaders among the Jewish people have never honored God, and he cites evidence of their ongoing chronic idolatry and rejection of God and rejection of prophets, and this is substantiated from the Old Testament. This is uh, was said many, many times by writers of the Hebrew Scriptures, at giving evidence and indictment against uh, the Jewish people for their rejection of God. And this is clearly the reason that the Northern Kingdom of Israel was uh, was destroyed by Assyria in 722, and the Southern Kingdom in 586. And the temple, the first temple destroyed, was because of idolatry. And and so this is just repeating and reaffirming the indictment of the Old Testament. Stephen isn't saying something new. This isn't an anti-Semitic argument. He's not coming up all of a sudden with something new. He's just repeating what uh, the prophets of the Old Testament, Elisha. Remember our study of Elijah and Elisha and the the, uh, prevalence of idolatry and the fertility cult in the northern kingdom of Israel. Once Ahab married Jezebel and she brought in all of her Uh, high priests, the uh, high priests of Baal and the high priests and the priestesses of the Asherah, and they went around the countryside in the the northern kingdom of Israel uh, basically uh, as a hit squad, an extermination squad, trying to kill and get rid of anyone who was faithful to the Mosaic law and the worship of Yahweh. So you have centuries of profound idolatry and antagonism to God in the Old Testament yet Stephen is extremely respectful of God and his message He's neither is he antagonistic to Moses but he was going to point out that Moses was was a deliverer of Egypt, of uh, of the Jews from slavery in uh in Egypt and that when Moses first came on the scene he was rejected by the Jewish people as their deliverer And they did not recognize him as the one God sent to deliver them. And it was only the second time that Moses came that they recognized him as the deliverer that God had sent. Um, and, and, And Stephen isn't showing any disrespect for the Torah, but he is clearly affirming what the Old Testament scriptures teach. That the Mosaic law was temporary and was not designed to be permanent, he shows respect for the Torah and he shows respect for the temple, just because he said that the temple uh, worship was no longer going to be relevant this was the uh, this was not something that was. Uh, Unknown. The Old Testament had not only predicted that, but had predicted that there would be another temple that would come later, and this is in Ezekiel chapter 40 and following, and that there would be a new set of of, uh, sacrifices in Ezekiel's temple that would replace the Levitical sacrifices of the Mosaic law. And so there's there's no basis at all for these charges. It's obvious from just reading through what Sam, what uh, what uh, Stephen says that there's no basis for any kind of charge of, of blasphemy. The problem is that they are, they have deified Torah and temple, so that they have in their uh, in in a idolatrous manner. They have rejected both the teaching of God and the teaching of Moses, and this is basically the argument that uh, Stephen is going to uh, bring against them. When Stephen comes uh, to the uh, comes to the forefront here, he is going to respond. Uh, to their their charge, but he's not going to respond in, by simply presenting a defense of his, what he has said. He is going to turn it into an offensive maneuver, and he assaults them on the basis of uh, of their history. He completely turns it against them and presents a case against them. So it is an indictment of the Jewish leadership at this time, and their failure to honor God and Moses and their failure to respect what the Old Testament taught about temple and Torah. So he, uh, he follows up a, a tradition of the prophets, a tradition of the prophets. If you go through the Old Testament, you'll notice that, that the role of the prophet from Moses down through uh, Malachi is to challenge the behavior of the Jewish people on the basis of their covenant responsibilities toward God as spelled out in the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law demanded of the Jewish people their exclusive loyalty to God and spelled out what that behavior would appear to be, what it would look like. And when they violated that, when they were in rebellion against God, when they were idolatrous, when they failed to apply the law, then God would send a prophet as his representative who would bring a an indictment like a prosecutor would against a criminal. And so the prophet spoke for God, and there was a, a Hebrew word called uh, the word reeve which had to do with this kind of a, a, an indictment against the people, and so that's used sometimes to describe this particular kind of lawsuit. And this is how, how uh, uh, Stephen is, is, is uh, functioning. It is uh, the longest speech recorded in Acts, the longest sermon recorded in Acts, and it is the only sermon in Acts where there is no clear gospel presentation. The purpose for this message is not to present the gospel, but to present an indictment against the Jewish people. Now, it's important to understand the flow of what's been going on in Acts. In Acts, we're in a transition period in history from the Jews to the Gentiles, from the temple to the church. And what happens in Acts is that is that the, at the beginning the focus is on Jews in Jerusalem and the church is exclusively a Jewish church made up of Jewish believers up to this this point and uh, there is a, yet an offer a grace offer to all of the Jewish people to turn and accept Jesus as the Messiah. This is the thrust of Peter's message in Acts 2, Peter's message in Acts 3. This is the focal point of the preaching of the uh, apostles and of the uh, seven uh, throughout this period. And yet there has been a continued rejection of this message. And so now there's going to be an indictment. God has extended grace to this uh, generation again, that the same generation that just two years earlier had crucified uh, Jesus, the Messiah, and now there is going to be another indictment from Stephen, and they're going to get uh, the same response from the leaders of the people. Now, I have uh, read this in different sources, several different sources, that there is an estimation that around 30%, 30 to 35%, of the Jewish people at the time uh, of Jesus accepted, and the early first century accepted Jesus as the Messiah. That's a huge number. But it wasn't represented among the religious leadership, the Sadducees uh, and the Pharisees, and they were in a power struggle. In fact, uh, part of the issue that went on, I pointed this out in an earlier, uh, earlier lesson, was you only had about, according to Josephus, only had about a fifty five hundred or so legitimate card carrying Pharisees it's a small group but uh, you had a, the, it was it was also according to Josephus the people were with the Pharisees, but the people were also paganized and hellenized and there was a lot of uh, uh, there, there was a lot of promiscuity there was a lot of licentiousness they weren 't committed to a moral ethical observance of uh, The mosaic law just think about this jesus how many times in the scripture does it talk about jesus uh, being associated with uh, with tax collectors and prostitutes well in a moral society you don't have that many immoral people they're not they're not obvious how do you know they're prostitutes well, it must have been a set a, a, a set apart class. There must have been a lot of them. It must not have been socially condemned. And there's evidence from from uh, writers talking and uh, Jewish writers talking in the second century that the, 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 that that adultery and fornication had 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 reached enormous proportions, as well as, as sodomy. Uh, it, it imitated Greco-Roman culture. And this was a problem that, that was going on in, in Israel in the first century when the Messiah came. And so on the one hand, the people were licentious, but on the other hand, they knew that was wrong, and so they, they, they recognized that, well, if anything's right, it's going to be the Pharisees, so we kind of support them. And uh, so that gave the Pharisees a base for uh, doing, some, uh, uh, doing some rabble-rousing. But It wasn't necessarily a highly ethical, religiously legalistic culture. That was only true among certain class of leadership, uh, the the Pharisees. So we see that in this overview of Stephen's message, that as he sets things up, the first thing he does is he focuses on Abraham. Then he focuses on Joseph. Joseph's name is mentioned five times between verse 9 and verse 18. And then starting in verse 20, he begins to focus upon Moses and he focuses on Moses from verse uh, 20 down through verse uh, 36, uh, 37, um, all the way down through uh, actually all the way down through uh, 43. And then he begins to shift and talk about the tabernacle, which was done away with and replaced by the temple. So if the tabernacle was done away with and replaced by the temple, why can't God do away with the temple and do something else? That's his, that's his line of argumentation. So he shows great respect for for Moses. He shows great respect for the law. And uh, he lays down a groundwork. This is the foundation for his argument. Goes to Abraham in verses 2 through 8. What does he say about Abraham? God called out Abraham as an act of divine love. What he is saying is the core foundation of of, of Torah... Judaism was that, uh, was God's love and grace is the foundation of God's relationship with the Jewish people. That their, the core value in their religion was God's love and grace. Well, where did Torah come in? Torah doesn't come in for 450 years. Circumcision was a sign of the, of the what? Of the Abrahamic covenant. But Torah, the law, doesn't come in for 450 years. So that's a secondary idea. God has 450 years of dealing with the Jewish people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and the uh, and the patriarchs, long before there's ever uh, Torah, long before Moses. Moses comes along uh, at the same time as Torah. When does the temple come along? The temple doesn't come along until about 970 B.C., not for another five hundred years after torah so so what what uh, Stephen is arguing here is the foundation of real biblical religion for the Jewish people is the love of God and the grace of God, not the law, not circumcision, not Moses, not the temple they've idolized. Those aspects and created a false god out of those things, and that is what is going to end up uh, end up angering them. So let's just uh, briefly skim over this and catch the high points of his his approach. He talks about God appearing to Abraham, the God of glory, the glorious God appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. So he's over in Ur, of the Chaldees. And he's surrounded by pagans, and God calls him and says, Get out of your country from your relatives. Go to a land that I'm going to show you. It's a free, gracious act. There's no condition set upon this. God says, I've got a gift for you. I've got a present for you. I'm going to give you this chunk of land over here, so you need to get up and come over there because the only way you're going to enjoy a piece of real estate is if you go to that piece of real estate. There's not some sort of legalistic condition. It's just the reality and nature of this kind of a thing. If I said to you, I'm going to give you a car, uh, I'm going to give you the keys to the car, but you're going to have to go to the car. That's not saying there's a legalistic condition. It's just that if you're going to experience ownership of the car, you have to go get the car. You have to move to that car. So... Abraham has to move, and he's just rehearsing this historically, he, that verse 4, he came out of the land of the Chaldeans, dwelt in Haran until his father died, and then he, that is God, moved him to this land uh, in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance. And now he em- emphasizes the fact that he never owned a, 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 a square inch of property other than what he bought to bury uh, Sarah and himself in. He never owned real estate that was promised by God, but God uh, gave him this, uh, this promise that he would give him this land. So we have a foundation here of promise. Now this is real subtle in this argument. What he's going to show is that Abraham was given a promise. He was given a far promise, which is you're going to own the land and you're going to have an inheritance forever in the land. And he's given a near promise. And that promise or prophecy is that that your descendants are going to leave this land and they're going to be slaves in Egypt for about 400 years and then I'm going to bring them back to this land. The fact that God brought them back to the land and, and that that part of the promise proved to be literally true historically was to be evidence that if God could do that in the near fulfillment, he would also give them the land in perpetuity in the far fulfillment. It's sort of a down payment to show that God can do what he ultimately promised. And the point that he's making to the Sanhedrin is that what the Jewish people did again and again and again was to reject that God could ultimately fulfill that promise and to reject the God who gave that promise. They weren't, they weren't faithful to the covenant. Now, there was always a remnant that was, but for the most part he's saying you know, that they rejected Moses, they rejected, they rejected Joseph, they rejected Moses, they rejected the promise, they, they uh, uh, defiled the temple time and time again uh, by putting uh, idols in the temple and that, that they are all under, under indictment. So he goes through uh, the circumstances with the promise to God and the promise that God would uh, <clears throat> give him this, this land, but in the short term, verse 6, that Abraham's descendants would dwell in a foreign land and they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And, and then, and quoting from uh, Genesis uh, chapter um, 17, uh, or Genesis chapter 15, rather, God said, and the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge. And after that, they shall come out and serve me uh, in this place. And so there was a, a clear prophecy there that God would uh, would provide uh, deliverance. And so then as a sign of this, God gave him the covenant of circumcision. Circumcision is the sign of the covenant with, with Abraham And as a result, he just summarizes the next part of Genesis. He says, Abraham gave birth to Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day as a sign of that covenant. And Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot the 12 patriarchs. Now that gets us up to Joseph. Now he's going to talk about two key individuals now. Abraham. Why do you talk about Abraham? Because the call of Abraham shows the real core of Jewish religion, the grace of God and the love of God. So why is he bringing in Joseph and Moses? What do they have in common? Joseph and Moses are both deliverers that God sent to Israel. They both showed up twice. They show up initially, they're rejected by by the rest of the Jews. The Jews reject these deliverers the first time, and they accept them the second time. What's the pattern? Jesus shows up as the Messiah... He's rejected the first time, but he will be accepted the second time. Fits the pattern. So, uh, uh, Stephen now turns to Joseph and he says the patriarchs became envious of Joseph. See, this is a pattern, guys. It's in our DNA. We, we get, become envious of other people and we reject God's provision. And so he's he's indicting them for carrying out that pattern. He said, but even though the patriarchs rejected God, the God's choice, God was with him, and delivered him. That is Joseph out of all of his troubles, gave him grace and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, and despite all of the machinations and conspiracies of the brothers, Joseph ends up being the second in command in Egypt, in a position where he can deliver his family in a time of worldwide uh, famine and so when uh, Jacob and the family he hears about uh, that there's food down in down in Egypt we know the story Jacob sent uh, the the brothers down to Egypt they did not recognize Joseph when they came into his presence Joseph recognized them though and he sent them he gave them grain he sent them back to their father um except he did play a little trick on them, and he stuffed the, all their money back in their bags, and so they were scared to death that they would be arrested as criminals, as having stolen the money. And, uh, but they had had to leave uh, one, of their, uh, one, of, one of them behind, because they, Joseph had found out they had a younger brother, Benjamin, and so Judah had stayed behind, and uh, uh, they were told that if they came back, they had to bring Benjamin. Now, the brothers would have just left Judas sit down there and rot, but eventually they ran out of food, and they had to go back. And when they went back, this time they recognized Joseph, and Joseph is the one who elevates them to a position of privilege uh, with within the uh, empire. The Pharaoh does because they are Joseph's relatives. Uh, but eventually there develops a... a, a uh, Pharaoh who does not know Joseph, this is down in verse 18, another king arose who did not know Joseph. And this man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies. So now we have this circumstance where the Pharaoh is uh, has passing a mandate, a decree that all of the Jewish babies have to be put out to die. All the males have to be exposed so that they, uh, they won't live. Uh, in violation of that, when Moses was born, his family kept him in secret for three months so that he would develop some strength and ability to survive. And then they put him in a, uh, a small uh, ark made out of reed so that it would float on the water. And they put him out on the, uh, on the water. And God oversaw in his providence that Pharaoh's daughter would find him and then he would be adopted into the royal family. We're told some things in this uh, section about Moses that we don't learn in Exodus, that Moses was learned in all of the wisdom of the Egyptians and mighty in words and deeds. He is one of the most educated individuals possible in the ancient world. He studied all of the sciences and all the arts, uh, all the military arts, and he excels in all of them. But somewhere along the line, contrary to uh, uh, Cecil B. DeMille and his presentation in the Ten Commandments, Moses seems to be somewhat aware of who he is, that he is Jewish, that he's not an Egyptian. And uh, this could conceivably be because he was circumcised. And so he came to understand that there was a difference and that he wasn't like the Egyptians. And so he was, uh, uh, began to identify himself with his people and uh, it's at this time that he saw one of them being oppressed. Verse 24. And Moses seeks to be that deliverer. So there's a sense in which he knows that he is to be their deliverer, but he doesn't know how to do it the right way. What people don't understand is there's a right. A right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. It doesn't matter how how uh, sincere things are, uh, our people are, our legislators are. If they do something the wrong way, it's wrong. And so, uh, Moses does something the wrong way, and as a result, uh, he's going to eventually be run out of Egypt. He goes, uh, uh, the, uh he kills this one Egyptian in, uh, se- arguably in self defense or defense of another, and then the next day he goes back. Uh, He thought that, well, the Jewish people would accept him as their deliverer. But instead, what happens the next day when he sees two of them fighting and he tries to reconcile them, uh, they reject him. And they said, who are you? Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Are you going to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? So they don't recognize him as a deliverer. They reject him as a deliverer. And uh, Moses ends up fleeing. He spends another 40 years in basic training by God. And then one day, when he's out with the sheep, uh, he is up on uh, Mount Sinai, probably not the traditional Mount Sinai, but uh, somewhere in that Sinai Peninsula. He saw a burning bush. Now, that's not anything unusual. There are a lot of bushes that burn in the Sinai, it's a desert. What happened was this bush didn't get consumed. That's what caught his attention. It continued to burn and burn and burn, and it didn't, didn't consume itself. And so he decided to go look at it and to uh, uh, check it out. And uh, when he did, God began to speak to him, and God identified him as the, him as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And uh, Moses, of course, realized that he was uh, in the presence of God and was quite fearful for his life, and then the Lord told him, uh, to take off his feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Now it's not in the land of Israel. This is holy land is any land where God's presence is on the ground. And he God tells uh, Moses that he has seen that is he's fully aware of the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. Now come, I will send you to Egypt. We're going to do the right thing now at the right time in the right way. And so he. Uh, is going to send Moses. Of course, Moses said, "Well, they've already rejected me, so I'm not going to go back. Uh, I'm not going to go back for more rejection." And God said, "No, I will. Uh, I will make it clear to them that you are the one that I have chosen." Now, then, then he skips, or Stephen skips ahead to the prophecy that Moses gives uh, in verse 37, which is a quote from Deuteronomy 18:15. And 18, that the Lord will raise up a prophet like Moses. And this is a messianic prophecy. And it looks forward to the fact that there will be a prophet like Moses who has this intimacy with God and that the people should listen to him. It's not just any prophet. This will be a unique prophet uh, that will uh, have a leadership role like Moses but even greater. And so uh, verse 38, Stephen says, This is he who was in the congregation of the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai, that is Moses, and he says, uh, With our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us whom our fathers would not obey. So why are you accusing me of blasphemy and not obeying when you are the heirs of those in the wilderness who wouldn't obey Moses and wouldn't obey God? So you're just carrying on the family tradition of disobedience to God and rejecting his messengers. So he continues to raise the uh, indictment level against them. And he points out now the episode of idolatry that occurred while Moses was up on Mount Sinai receiving the law from God. They're so impatient and their their attention span on worshiping God is, is about that long. And as soon as Moses is just is out of sight, just about, they start uh, becoming impatient and entice, uh, Mos- uh, entice Aaron to make some idols for them to worship. Uh, god's destroyed or killed Moses. He hasn't come back, so make us uh, some gods so that we can worship them. And what's he pointing out here? He's pointing out that historically and throughout the Old Testament period, uh, the Jewish people rejected Torah, they rejected the mandate to worship God and they, uh, they are always, were always antagonistic uh, to, Mo- to Moses. And this is explained further in verse 42 and 43, which is a quotation uh, that comes from uh, the Old Testament and from, um, and from Amos. In in, uh, in this particular uh, in this particular section in Amos chapter five verses twenty uh, uh, five and twenty seven Amos five twenty five to twenty seven Amos wrote Amos writes at the same time as Isaiah this is about uh, hundred and fifty years or so before the first temple is destroyed and Amos uh, indicts the uh, Southern kingdom of Judah, the same way that Isaiah did, and, he, and Amos says, Did you offer me, as this is God speaking through Amos, did you offer me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness 40 years, O house of Israel? No, of course not, God says. You also carried Sikuth, your king, and Chian, your idol. So you had all this idolatry going on while you're wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. The star of your gods, which you made for yourself, therefore I will send you into captivity beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. So there's this accusation here, verses 42 to 43, as a reminder that that they have... um, They've committed idolatry throughout their history. It is, was a chronic problem, and God is going to bring judgment uh, upon them. Jeremiah 32, 35 is another indictment. They built the high places of Baal, which are in the valley of the son of Hinnom. Hinnom is a valley just to the south uh, uh, side of Jerusalem, which is where they are uh, uh, also known as Gehenna, uh, otherwise known as hell. Where the uh, where they burned the, 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 their trash, but it was where they had the, uh, the the actually they had the idols to Moloch, and they would sacrifice their infants on the fires of Moloch's belly. Second Kings twenty three uh, ten relates to the same circumstance of uh, human sacrifice to these idols, and so again there is this indictment. And then in, in in the final stage of his argument, uh, Stephen goes through his the, the the issue related to the temple. Now he starts with the tabernacle in verse forty four because the point that he is uh, the point that he is making is that uh, the temple the tabernacle was temporary and it was eventually replaced by the temple, and the temple was designed to be temporary also because God doesn't dwell. In houses made by human hands. Now, this isn't something new with Stephen. This is a quote from Solomon, who built the first temple. First Kings eight twenty seven and Second Chronicles six sixteen both record this that uh, since God does not dwell in a house, that there eventually would be a time when uh, God would not be dwelling in a house. And so, there is a quote here then from. Um, Uh, 1 Chronicles uh, 22.7, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? In other words, I don't need a house. The universe is my uh, dwelling. And so again, Solomon is showing, I mean, uh, Stephen is showing great respect for the temple. He doesn't say anything negative about the temple. He just says it's not permanent. And the, then he drives the point home. He says, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. And we've studied that phraseology before, that that was used even by Moses to refer to not physical circumcision, but uh, mental circumcision. And it has to do with a failure in their thinking to submit uh, to the authority of God. A failure to submit to the authority of God is seen in and uh, passages such as uh, Leviticus 26:41, uh, "You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did; so do you. You're just carrying on the family tradition." Uh, he says in verse 52, "Which of your fathers, did, which of the prophets, did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who foretold the coming of the Just One. This is a title, the righteous one, a title for Messiah." And he's saying that throughout the the period of the Old Testament. Uh, the Jewish people continue to reject those whom the prophets God sent and to kill them because they didn't want to receive the message about the Messiah. And he says, Of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers of this Messiah, uh, you, that these were those who in the past had received the law by the direction of angels but you have not kept it so he comes back to showing you're accusing me of blasphemy against the law but you're the ones who have failed again and again and again generationally to fulfill the Torah and so he has refuted their arguments and so the re- reaction is that they become uh, cut to the heart or just it's, it's if they're, the imagery is that somebody just sliced them from head to the center of their torso, uh, in, in, in an attack, and so they begin to gnash their teeth. They're just they're just overwhelmed. They, they, they're, their emotions are so strong; it's generating such a response in them that they're gnashing their teeth. But in contrast, he, full of the Holy Spirit, again a term for for maturity, uh, he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. So the heavens open up. He sees the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of the of God. Now he he his positionally Jesus is seated, but he can stand to receive uh, Stephen. Some people think this is a problem. I'm going to address some of the problems in this section next time. And Stephen says, "Look, I see." The heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now this term, Son of Man, is a term for the Messiah from Daniel chapter 7. And this just makes them even angrier that they hear this. They think this is all blasphemy. They cover their ears so they don't have to hear it. And they ran at him and they take him. And the thing was they were to take, if they were going to stone somebody, they take him out to the precipice. Uh, used to be a cliff there at the edge of the of the, of the the temple and they would throw him off at least a 12-foot cliff and the hope was that that would kill the person uh, and if it didn't, then it wouldn't take long to kill them from stoning. So they had to throw him off a, a 12-foot cliff, a minimum 12-foot cliff and so they would throw him off the cliff and then they began to uh, throw rocks and they have to pick up these rocks and throw them. It's hard to do it when you have robes on so they would take their robes off and the individual who's watching them is first introduced to us here. His name is Saul, and he would have probably representing uh, Gamaliel at these proceedings. And so we're first introduced to him. This, is, this foreshadows the transition into uh, what will come uh, later on. And uh, they stone Stephen as he calls upon God and says, Lord Jesus... Uh, receive my spirit. He's addressing Jesus because that's who he sees standing at the right hand of the Father, his Savior. And then he, in in imitating his Lord on the cross, says, Lord, do not charge him with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, a term for not soul sleep, but a euphemism uh, used in Scripture for the physical death of of a believer. Now what happens here is this begins to set up a transition. We're introduced to Saul. Uh, he becomes the chief persecutor of the church in chapter eight. Then his conversion in in chapter nine. But this this uh, this this assault and execution of Stephen becomes the end of the first stage of uh, uh, of the uh, expansion of the church in the stage of their being in Jerusalem and after this there's going to be an expansion because now they have to leave Jerusalem a huge persecution begins and up to this point the Sanhedrin has just uh, had basically a hands-off policy although they've been hostile now they are hostile aggressive and they are out to kill and to slaughter and to arrest and to actively persecute Uh, all of the Jews who have accepted Jesus as Messiah. Remember, the church is still Jewish at this point. It's not Gentile. So they are uh, assaulting other Jews. It's a spiritual civil war against those who have accepted Jesus uh, as the Messiah. Now, next time I'll come back, I want to look at some details within uh, uh, this particular message because there are some things that need to be uh, just clarified and looked at and then before we move on with Saul in chapter 8. Father, thank you for this time to study your word this evening, uh, to be reminded of the historical flow of how, though the Jewish people had a rejection of you, this is just a microcosm of the rejection of the rest of humanity. That as Paul says in Romans 1, that, that all were suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, and this is not something unique to the Jewish people, but they, that they, like the rest of humanity, continue to resist uh, all that you did in grace, reaching out to them uh, from the way the pattern set with Abraham. Father, we pray that you would just help us to, uh, as we reflect upon this, to see the pattern of your grace and your goodness constantly reaching out again and again and again, as you do for every one of us. Uh, not just giving us one chance, but multiple chances to respond uh, to your grace before finally uh, judgment sets in. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.